Um, so Jesus was having lunch with the deacons one day. And uh, I think there were some pastors there and Sunday school teachers uh, sitting around the table. And this woman comes in and kind of a woman of the night, kind of a immoral woman. Everybody knows what kind of woman she is. And she comes to the back of Jesus and she weeps all over Jesus and her tears wet his, his feet. And as she's weeping over Jesus and kissing his feet and washing his feet with her hair. The deacons were like, if he really knew what kind of woman this was, if he was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was. Like if he really was all that he says he would, he would know who's who's kissing his feet and washing it with his hair right now. And so Jesus stopped and he's like, let me ask you a question. They're like, okay, ask the question. Okay, there's this guy who loaned money out. He was a money lender and one person owed him, you know, a thousand bucks and another person owed him 50 bucks and and they couldn't pay. And Jesus said, okay, so the money lender canceled the debt of both of them. Who's going to love him more? And they were like, well, of course, the one who had the thousand dollars canceled. You're so right. You're so right. And then he goes in, so I, I came, I came to your house, and you didn't greet me with a kiss. I didn't get a hug. I didn't get a good firm handshake. But she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since she got here. We're like, I came in, and you didn't even give me water to wash my feet, much less have your servants wash my feet for me. But she's not ceased, ceased to cry over my feet and weep and wash my feet with her hair. And then he makes the big, the big point of the day. The one who's forgiven much loves much. And he looks at the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. They didn't like that too much. Like, who does this guy think he is that he forgives sins? But it's easy to keep stories like that back there in the Bible world, isn't it? It's easy to think, well, you know, that's good for her. But what if the details were changed and it was you sitting at the feet of Jesus? And people could see on a billboard the marquee sins of your life. And they could see on the billboard the big stuff that's in your heart, the big stuff that you did last night, the big ticket stuff that you've done throughout your life. And with that in mind, like, if Jesus, if you were really a prophet, if you really were the Holy Son of God, you'd know what kind of guy is sitting by your feet right now. If you were really the Holy Son of God, if you were really a prophet, you would know what kind of woman is sitting beside you right now. Because you're all meant to be in that story at the feet of Jesus. Not just the ones that do the really bad stuff that everybody knows about, but all of us who have done infinitely bad stuff. Who must cling to the feet of Jesus. And we're going to have a story that resembles that story dead on. But I don't want you to dare think, oh yeah, that woman. So good that Jesus forgives that woman. No, it's you. It's me. So the kind of the big point of the day, in Jesus, radical grace triumphs over rightful guilt. In Jesus, radical grace triumphs over rightful guilt. So as we're, we're getting there, uh, we'll be in John chapter 8. Chapters 6 through 8 are littered with these big statements about Jesus. Jesus showing who he is by some really uh, huge statements about himself. In chapter 6, it's like, I'm the better bread. I'm the bread of life. You, you can eat the manna that God gives, and that's amazing. 
But you're still going to die. But you can feast on me the better bread. And you'll find satisfaction for your life. And you'll find eternal life at the end. And then he makes the, the statements about, uh, about water. You know, that if you're thirsty, come. And I will deeply satisfy your soul with the water that leads to life. And it will be the Holy Spirit that will come when I'm glorified. And he makes statements about I'm the light of the world. Right? That I will wash the world in the saving light of God. And offer to the world the salvation that comes. And then if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness. You will walk in light. And so he makes these statements all over the place throughout 6 and 8. And then right inserted into the middle of all of this is this little story. This little story that has some challenges we're going to get to. And I'm going to ask you to not check out on me. I know it's summer. I know it's early. I know it's hot. I know you need a nap. But I'm, you're going to have to give me like 10 minutes of focused concentration to, uh, to get through it. We'll get to that in a second, though. But before we get to it, the story makes a point that's splattered across the pages of the New Testament. And it's this. Jesus confronts the self-righteous while restoring the sinful and setting him on a new path of righteousness. So Jesus confronts the self-righteous. And then he transforms sinful people into those who chase after righteousness. He transforms people to a real righteousness. And that's what we're going to see splash across the story. Uh, one example, Matthew chapter 9. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard it and he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go then and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I've come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. I didn't come to call those who think they're righteous. I didn't come to call those who think they are good. I came to call sinners, to restore sinners, to forgive sinners, and then to throw sinners after the path of righteousness. A new restored righteousness that's found in me. So that's, like, that's the point of this text. And it's good news for every one of us. Because we all fit the bill. We're all big sinners. You're like, no, I'm pretty good. No, we're all big sinners. Like, man, I grew up in church. No, we're all big sinners. Right? Do you know how much self-righteousness like clings to your bones? Do you know how much pride eats at your soul? And there's hope that doesn't condemn but uncondemns us in passages like this. And so uh, I think I'm going to do the got to concentrate part first. So we can just go into the text after that. So if you look in your Bible, almost or most of your manuscripts are going to have double brackets around this passage. And it's going to say something like the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 8, 1 through 11. Right? Everybody kind of see that? All right? That is because most scholars, most people who deal with the text of the New Testament do not believe that John wrote this text and that this text belongs in the inspired scriptures. All right. Are you freaked out? Are you OK? Maybe I got your attention. I might, it might last eight minutes. Give me eight minutes. All right. And I would agree with them. This text is most likely not part of the original writing of John. It's most likely not part of the inspired text of scripture. Here's a few reasons why. This passage is almost entirely absent from any of our early Greek manuscripts until about year 400 or 500. And so we've got all these manuscripts that come out of the east and out of the west over there, right? They're east and they're west, Jerusalem. 
in the, in the West. It comes from all these different geographical locations, but none of it comes with this story as a part of it until about four or 500 BC. And so they can trace back to that point and they can see nothing. It doesn't show up beyond that point. That's why it says the earliest manuscripts do not include. Also, along these lines, the early church fathers, you know, people that did what I did, but were much better at it, like way back near the New Testament. Well, when they preached through books of the Bible and made commentaries on the books of the Bible, none of them address this passage or quote this passage in their messages or in their commentaries. So the earliest people that were dealing with the New Testament, dealing with John, didn't didn't mess with this. Um, it has been placed in at least three other places in, in the New Testament. And so twice in Luke and in two places in John. So we see it kind of nobody was really sure where do we stick this in? It's good stuff. But where do we stick it in? Um, two other points. If it was removed, the flow of thought from 752 to 812, which is how we did it, is seamless. So it's almost like this perfectly woven garment with a dialogue and topics and interactions that all go together and end at a point of we're going to stone Jesus, which is the end of chapter eight, kind of gets torn apart and this gets dropped into the middle of it. And then the last thing I would say about why it's not included is it doesn't sound or feel like John. So if you read it, it doesn't hit the ear the way John, if you've been following along in John, it doesn't sound like the rest of John. And I say that kind of as your ear, but also very technically. If you were to go underneath the text, you would find that there are words that John doesn't use and phrase John doesn't use. Like if you see in there, we'll get to it in a second. The scribes and the Pharisees. Nowhere in John is that link made. It's made all over Luke. It's made all over Mar- uh, Matthew, but it's never used in John. So there's things like that where it just doesn't fit technically the writing or the vocabulary of John. Are y'all freaked out? You okay yet? All right. You know, I, be- I love the Bible. 100% inspired. I'm, I'm all for it. So, but we got to deal with stuff like this. Um, and so it doesn't challenge our view of inerrancy, but it feels weird. And so let me run down the landscape really quickly for you. Just, just to try to put underneath, like, how do we get here from there? All right. And so how many of y'all know, or have heard of a guy named Aristotle? Do y'all believe he's real? Do you believe he wrote stuff down on paper? Anybody not believe Aristotle's real or wrote stuff down on paper? All right. So as far as historical documents go, I just want to give you a frame of reference. There's a guy named Aristotle who wrote and we have 49 manuscripts of what he wrote. So we have 49 pieces of paper from the ancient world uh, that, that represent copies of what he wrote. You know how early the earliest manuscript is from Aristotle? 1400 years after he disappeared off the earth. 49 copies, 1400 years. And everybody believes in Aristotle. All right, so let's talk about the New Testament as a frame of reference. Forty-nine. Do you know how many copies, ancient copies of the New Testament there are? Manuscripts, fragments? Five thousand six hundred and change. So if we believe that there's an Aristotle, and this is very normal, right? This is the way historical documents work in the ancient world. This is how it works. They, they go back and how many copies do we have and how close was it? Well, the New Testament had 5,600 copies uh, and fragments and pieces of the New Testament that we have in existence that date back to within 100 years. Like if you were to think of this in baseball terms, the New Testament is the major leagues and any other comparable work of the ancient world is like rec league baseball. That's the difference between the evidence we have for the New Testament and the purity of the New Testament and the and the way that we have like the 
the, the finished product of the New Testament. That's, that's the difference between what we have and any other ancient work that everybody believes and everybody thinks it, it really happened that way. And so we have all these texts and all these fragments and all these things, but they have discrepancies in them. You're like, now you're really messing around here. No, they do. So here's how, you know how the Bible got to you, right? Like there, there wasn't nice printed words in a, in a book and a printing press. That didn't exist until like 1400s, 1500s. So you know how you got the, these fragments and these copies and these manuscripts? Some guy sat over a desk as his sacred task with a copy with no spaces, no punctuation, no verse marks, simply Greek letters strung together. And he copied those Greek letters by hand in perfect form. And if you ever can go look at one, it's like shy. you can't read it. Even if you could read Greek, you couldn't read it because it's like it's like a it's a word jumble. It's just letters after letters. And you've got to figure out where the words break. And so they would just copy it. And so these discrepancies creep in because it's it's a man-made human copyist. And so he'd be writing and, and, and he may duplicate a phrase or he would be writing and he may be like, yeah, you know, and he'd finish out this verse with like a verse from Mark. Or he'd be writing and he'd think, I need to smooth that text out. None of it intentional, none of it trying to mess out. But, you know, if you were sitting in front of, you know, this string together bunch of letters and copying it for 8 or 10 or 12 hours a day, you could see how a little bit of hand error, a little bit about your mind filling in the blanks might happen. Now, the good news is this. None of it affects any major meaning, none of it affects any major doctrine that we have. Like nothing's in danger. We can trace most of this stuff back and get rid of it. And 9.9 out of 10 is what I just said. It's just like they just added a phrase from Mark while they're copying Luke because that's what's in their mind and that's what their mind filled the page with. Or they just added out, kind of smoothed out an ending or something. But there's these two major places. This one, John chapter 8, which is a full story that got inserted. And then the long ending of Mark is also this way. Most people do not believe that's authentic. And so... Are we freaked out by this? Is our view of an inerrancy messed up by this? Not at all. In fact, what I would say is that in, stories like this enhance our view of inerrancy because the process that God ordained to give us a pure text that is inerrant worked. And we were able to trace back and remove discrepancies. We were able to tra- trace back and know with a high level of certainty that this was not part of the original. So it worked. And so I would say our view of inerrancy is not threatened by this situation at all. Um, Another note is most scholars do think the event happened. So they don't think it's inspired. They don't think it's original, but they do think it happened. It's got the marks of historical reliability. It's got very similar phrases. Like if you were to read the last, the Passion Week of Luke, like all this vocabulary would sound very familiar. Uh, Mount of Olives and scribes and Pharisees and teaching in the temple like it would all be it has the markers of, of historical reliability So what happened? We don't know You know, maybe luke and the holy spirit left it on the cutting room floor because like john says if we were to record everything jesus did It would fill up a world full of books. There's just not enough space And so for some reason the holy spirit left it out uh, but it must have continued with oral tradition or continued uh, as a leaflet note somewhere. And eventually it merged into the text. We don't know how, but it, then, it, you know, you can see because of the beauty of the story why it kind of took off from there. We just don't know how it got there. All right. So everybody OK? You can tune back in if you fell asleep. Um, but here's here's kind of the final note of what I would say. For over 100 years, we have had liberal not politically, but theological liberals 
who have wanted to undermine our view of the Bible's inerrancy. They've wanted to cast doubt on its credibility. They've wanted to attack the underpinnings of it. They've wanted to say it's not reliable or it's just made up. Or, you know, you've probably heard this, like they went and they took books out that they didn't like, um, like the Gospel of Thomas. Like they just didn't like that. So the church just threw that stuff out. Totally false. And here's, uh, here's the conclusion, uh, a statement by a guy named F.F. F. Bruce. The general result of all critical discoveries and study is to strengthen the proof of the authority of Scripture. And that we have in our hands with substantial integrity the veritable word of God. So what's the result of a hundred years of assault on the credibility of the Bible? A stronger more credible understanding that we have the word of God in our hands, not less. And so they've actually they've actually not accomplished their purpose of undermining it. They've strengthened it instead, because as we dive in and as we go back into the text and as we trace the text backwards over and over again, we find more and more and more that is certain and more and more evidence that it is credible what we've been given. So would you say like, hey, this might be a concern you would have. Hey, can we just go to any of these passages in the, in the New Testament and be like, let's, let's, let's look at it this way and let's take that one out. Is any passage up for grabs if this one is? No, because the very same passages or the very same means that God ordained to purify the text through human scribal error is the same means that confirms the rest of the text. And so you can't just randomly pull out passages and think, I don't like that one or I don't think that one's real. Because there's this solid base of evidence to go back to that says, no, it is real. It is part of what was said. All right. So that's all I have to say about that. I tried to get my Forrest Gump accent out. Um, and now we'll, go into, now we'll go into the story um, from there. All right. So John chapter 8, it says, Then they went each back to their own house. And Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. And it, early the next day at dawn, he came back to the temple And all the people came with him and he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And they said, teacher, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commands that we should stone such women. What do you say? And they did this to test him, trying to bring some charge against him. And so Jesus bent down. With his finger and he wrote on the ground. But they kept asking him. They continued to ask him. And so Jesus stood up. And he said. Whoever is among you. With no sin. You be the first to throw the stone at her. And then he bent back down. And he wrote with his finger in the ground. And when they heard this. They began to walk away. One by one beginning with the oldest. And then Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And he said, woman, where are those who would accuse you? Has no one condemned you? No, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Father, I pray we would see ourselves in this story, whether it be the self-righteous trying to capture or condemn, or more so see us as the condemned 
who encounter a radical grace from Jesus and leave uncondemned. But God, I pray we wouldn't walk away without seeing ourselves and having deep parts of our heart confronted by this. And being changed by this. And so, Father, I pray, just grant me to communicate well. But more than that, by your spirit, speak deeply into our hearts, God, what is true and what is right and lovely about Jesus. And that we would realize we're the ones who are forgiven much. And so we would live the rest of our lives loving much. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go back through the story, you think about, okay, they went off to their house and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, if you've read the Passion Week in Luke, like the week leading up to the death of Jesus, that would be very familiar to you, right? Because he would teach during the day, then he would go out to the Mount of Olives at night. Eventually, that's where they, they, he's betrayed and he's captured. Then he would, we don't know who he lived with or who, who roomed him, but he would, he would make that journey. And then he'd come back the next day and he would teach. And so that's what he does. He goes out to Mount, the Mount of Olives, right, kind of across from, from Jerusalem. And then he, would, he came back in early the next day at dawn. And he came over to the temple, which would be a very normal place, a very common place where scribes or teachers of the law, they would show up at the temple, this very public place. And they would sit and they would have their students gather around them and sitting would be the normal posture. And they would sit down with their group of students surrounding them and they would teach the law. They would teach their students um, at that place. And so it was a very public and Jesus fell into that same tradition, that, that same method. He shows up at the temple, he sits down and all the people came to him and they were being taught by him. Now, this is a great opportunity for the Pharisees and the scribes, right? Because he's sitting in the temple. It's a very public place. It's easy for opponents. It's easy for critics to slip into this crowd and out of this crowd and, and be part of it. But it's also this awesome opportunity that if we can catch Jesus, we can destroy his influence among a huge group of people. Because if we can make Jesus stumble at this moment, if we can make Jesus trip up with this moment, it will be a very public stumble. It'll be a very public trip up. And so we can, we can, uh, we can catch him and we can remove so much of the damage he's done. And so that forms part of the plot of what happens here. Like, is this a really timely moment? They just happen to stumble on this woman. Is this a plotted moment that it happens to be while Jesus is teaching in the morning that it just so happens we found this person or did we plot this and make it happen? We don't know, but there's definitely some question marks that get raised as you walk through the story. Like, how did this go this way? But we know why it went that way. And that's what the text is going to tell us. And so he's in the temple. He's sitting down and he's teaching them. And then the scribes and the Pharisees bring a woman caught in adultery. Now, again, when we're going through John, hopefully this will ring a bell. How does Jesus refer to or, or how does John refer to the religious leaders throughout John? It's the Jews did this. The Jews said this. The Jews were seeking to kill him. And when he says that, he doesn't just mean the common, ordinary people, Jewish people. Generally, and context tells you specifically, but generally what he's talking about is like the Jewish leadership, the Jewish authorities. And so that's that's John's means of referring to the group that, that's referred to here. And so the scribes and the Pharisees do not show up together anywhere in the book of John outside of this passage. But they show up all over Luke like this. And that's why some people are led to think that that maybe this is a Lucan story that didn't quite make the final cut. But the scribes and the Pharisees, the self-righteous religious leaders, bring a woman caught in adultery. And they place her in the midst 
So if she's caught in the very act of adultery, guessing they didn't give her time to get, you know, fully dressed and proper and hair done. And so coming from the place where they're caught to this group, this massive crowd of people with the scribes and Pharisees coming and layering on top of that. And they throw in middle of the circle. Clothed enough to be decent, disheveled, just got out of the act. And you can imagine and, you know, not going too far down that line, but you can imagine if you're this woman. Like scarlet letter brazen across you and the, the shame of the moment where you've got these sneering group of men, like massive group of men. And you're just in this circle and you're guilty and it's rightful and, and you deserve everything they're saying. And so you're just kind of slumped, not making eye contact with anybody. Shame stamped across your life now in front of all this group of men. They placed her in the midst of the circle. And then they said to Jesus, teacher. This mock form of respect. We caught this woman in the act of adultery, which raises a couple of questions. Question one, how did you exactly catch this woman in the act of adultery? Right now, it could happen, right? And there's some ways it could happen. But for the most part, like, how do you how do you actually know and catch somebody in that? But that really leads to the second question, which is the bigger question that is meant to be asked in this text. Where's the dude? Right. It does take two to tango. It does take two to be involved. And if they were caught in the act, then both parties were present. But we're not really concerned with that, are we? And so what all of this illustrates for us is the the scribes and the Pharisees really have no concern with justice. They are not concerned with purifying the nation of Israel. They're not concerned with this has defiled us. This tears the community apart. This is something that God sees as abhorrent. Like, they're not concerned about that at all, are they? They're concerned with how can we use this lady, this woman, as a pawn in our political game against Jesus. And it's essential that we see their motives at the background because that, that ties into other motives that we see, uh, that we'll see as we deal with the same mentality in other places in the text. It's essential to see their motive. Their motive is not purity. It's not the law. It's not Moses. It's not upholding the holiness of God. It's trapping Jesus. And this woman is just a helpful pawn in that, in that plot that they have for him. So, we found this woman in the very act. Now, look what they say. In the law, Moses says such women should be stoned. True. Halfway. Now, how I said it takes two to tango, right? Here's what the law actually says. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, I know that strikes you as harsh. I'm just saying, but do you see how they only quoted half the verse? Like, it's very convenient for us to leave out the man part because in the, their society would be very similar to our society. Men have a built-in excuse, and it's kind of, we just wink and we nod, and it's okay for guys to run around. That's just what they do. Boys will be boys, and guys, it's okay if they kind of do. And so, you know, the good old boy club is like, yeah, guys, that's cool. We know, we got it. We understand this is how things work in Israel. This is how things work in Jerusalem. The guys, it's just part of what happens. It was an accepted part of life. And we don't say that to kind of 
import our mentality onto them. We say that just because that was, that was a cultural norm. It was not abnormal for men to do that. And it was not abnormal for men to not be, but it was very normal for women to get the reputation out of the deal, wasn't it? Very much like today. Right? The guy doesn't earn a reputation. The guy doesn't earn shame. The lady does, though. And her reputation is taken. And again, none of this justified. Like, we're dealing with sin. We're dealing with rightful guilt. That's what the point says, right? But we still see it's not quite pure. We're halfway quoting half a verse of Scripture to get Jesus trapped, as we're going to see in a moment. But we're not quoting the full verse or carrying out the full weight. And you want to know another thing that's a little interesting? Stoning and killing people for adultery had all but disappeared out of the nation of Israel. Like none of these people have probably ever witnessed a stoning for adultery. And so you might go to one of these like very distant rural towns and occasionally find it happen. But like in the sophisticated city of Jerusalem, when you're not even allowed to carry out the death penalty because that's under Roman law, not Jewish law, they're not allowed. Like. It would not happen. Like, we can't have blood and stones lying in the streets of Jerusalem. That is so barbaric. And so none of these people have ever enforced this law before. None of these people have ever cared about this law before. But all of a sudden, now that Jesus is sitting in the middle of Jerusalem, do y'all remember that law? Do you remember how we're supposed to stone people for this? Let's go get him. And it tells us very clearly they did this to test him. Because they wanted to bring a charge against him. And so they think, we have got Jesus finally. We have finally got him in a situation that he cannot get out of. Says puny little human intellect. Against the all-knowing, all-wise, eternal God of the universe, right? Yeah, you've got him trapped now. What's he ever going to do about it? They said it to test him. Because here's the dilemma, right? Jesus, the hallmark of Jesus's ministry has been taken, taking sinful people and broken people and restoring them back to God, saying, I forgive you of your sins. Right. Like the woman we we just told the story about in the beginning, like you're forgiven. The man who gets lowered down out of the, the roof by his friends, your sins are forgiven. Like the hallmark of Jesus's ministry is to take people who are guilty and say forgiven over their life. And so if he says, "Okay, stoner, then that's what the law says. Then they're like, we finally got him on our side. We were right all along. The law is what matters. Let's condemn people by the law. And so they can take and reverse the effects of Jesus's ministry if he'll just let them stone this lady. Or on the other side of the equation. If he says, don't stone her, I'm sorry, you're not allowed. Then they're like, see, he directly contradicts the written law of Moses. He's taking the clear teaching of Scripture, the clear moral law of God, the clear guilt of people, and he's erasing the Scriptures. And so you think, oh, we got Jesus now. One way or the other, he's going to either look like he's on our team and he's going to follow the law, or he's going to go against the law, and then we've really got him. And nobody's going to follow a guy that totally outright rejects the law, the, the written words of Moses. So Jesus is so trapped. And it's almost like he stops and they're chattering and yakking at him and accusing and making sure to quote the verse and the chapter of what's going on right in front of him. And what did he do? He stoops down and he begins with his finger to just write in the dirt in front of them. And you know what he wrote? We have no clue. <laughs> we do not know. Now, there are some theories and conjecture, but we don't know. Right. So some people, well, he wrote, you know, it would be common when there's a death penalty case. He wrote the charges against this woman in the dirt. 
Or maybe someday he wrote the Ten Commandments in the dirt to say, have you looked at yourself yet? Here's a mirror to look at yourself with. Or some people think maybe he wrote um, different parts of the Old Testament that you wouldn't be part of a false accusation or a false plot to trap somebody. And so maybe he wrote that down. Maybe he wrote some of their individual sins down in the dirt. We don't know. These are all just different theories that people have thrown out. But he does it and it does not it does not accomplish his point. Right. It doesn't stop the crowd's bloodlust. You see how it says they kept asking him. They kept asking him. They kept asking him. And so he stands up and for the first time speaks. If you're without sin, please go ahead and throw the first stone. And we have to be careful. Because it's very easy to overgeneralize this and be like, see, since nobody's perfect, we can't really deal with sin. And that is absolutely not what this text is saying. Much like uh, Matthew chapter 7, judge not that you be not judged, right? So we use that. See, you're not allowed to judge. You're not allowed to deal with people's sin. Who do you think you are? Nobody's perfect. But if you'll read a little bit further, if you remove the log out of your own eye, see, we cannot have self-righteous judgment because if you want to use self-righteous judgment out of a source of pride and condemnation, then that exact same standard will be measured back to you. But if you humble yourself, if you look at your own heart, if you remove the, the big log of your own pride and self-righteousness out of your eye and put it down, then you'll be able to see the speck that's in your brother's eye. And it will no longer be this self-righteous condemning judgment. It will be this humble restoring judgment that is being offered. And I think that's the same thing happening here. The scribes and the Pharisees clearly in self-righteousness were good. And we have got to stop you, Jesus, because you're bad. Right? And we want the law followed. And so he's not saying if you're sinlessly perfect, then you can deal with it. What is he saying? Here's a few things that I think he's saying. First, in the Old Testament, God's so brilliant, isn't he? In the Old Testament, here's how it works. If you accuse somebody of a stoning offense... You have to pick up a stone and be the first one to throw it. So if you're a witness to or an accuser of a death penalty offense, you've got to throw the first stone. So think about what this does. Like it would be great. They did it. They're guilty. Get him out of my way. Kill him. And then sneak off into the crowd. And my hands are clean. I didn't, you know, I didn't throw a stone. No. If you mean it, you've got to mean it enough to throw the first stone. You've got to look this person in the eye. You have to look at their form heaped on the ground. And you have to pick up a stone and you've got to throw it yourself. Your hands have to have blood on them too. And then it's either righteous blood because it was truly an offense or it is unrighteous blood. But can you see the beauty of that? Like how, how One more barrier to a false accusation is you've got to be one that's part of it. You don't get to hand it off to some jailer to execute the sentence. It's you. He who's without sin, throw the first stone. And so here's what I here's a couple of options. I think it means one. If you're not guilty in the plot to get us to this moment, throw a stone. Meaning some of y'all orchestrated this is an insinuation. Some of y'all somehow were part of making this event happen to trip up Jesus. If that's you or if you're innocent of that, throw a stone. Two. What I think it means is this. All you good old boys out there, if you've never committed an act of adultery in your life, the real deal, throw a stone. And then three, if your motives are pure, 
And if your heart is right, throw the first stone. So what is he trying to do? He's trying to challenge the conscience of these accusers to say, have you really checked yourself and you're innocent? Have you really checked yourself? And this is pure motives. Before you get your bloodlust up enough to throw this stone, have you looked at your own heart first and you haven't found guilt there? So you're innocent enough to throw this first stone at her. And what's the result? He stoops back down and just waits for the stones to throw, I guess. And he continues to write in the dirt. And what does it say when they heard him? They walked away one by one. This wasn't a mass exodus. This was the Holy Spirit of God stabbing people in the heart. And they slink off into the crowd and disappear one by one by one. As the God deals with them one by one by one to realize I have no business with the stone in my hand. Right. And then they're all gone and they stand. Uh, uh, um, she stands in, in front of him and he's like, well, where, where have they gone? Has no one condemned you? And what I take that to mean is, has no one officially brought charges against you? Has no one officially condemned you of this act at this point? Not that she's innocent, but has anybody formalized the charge? No, Lord, they have not. And so what does Jesus say? Neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. Now, here's the key point. Do not miss this point. This is not Jesus winking at this woman's sin. This is not Jesus saying, well, if nobody will convict you in the court of law, then it's fine with me and I'll just overlook it. It is not Jesus saying sin doesn't matter. It is not Jesus saying you're innocent and you're fine because we couldn't prove it in the court of law. What is it? This is Jesus saying, you are guilty, you are rightfully condemned, you deserve to be stoned, but I forgive you. I choose not to condemn you because I'm putting forgiveness in the place of condemnation. I'm putting grace and mercy in the place of a rightful guilt that belongs to you. And that is perfectly in line with the rest of the New Testament. Because Jesus confronts sinful people, applies grace to their life to forgive them, and then restores them to a life of righteousness following that. That's your story if you're in Christ. That's my story if I'm in Christ. And that's this woman's story in very graphic detail if we're in Christ. Neither do I condemn you. How do we know he's not playing around with sin? Like, oh, it just doesn't matter. Everybody, nobody's perfect, but you're going to do better. How do we know that that's the case? Because look at the rest of the text. Go, and from this point on, sin no more. You have encountered mercy, and now mercy has transformed you to run after righteousness. Right. You could have been condemned. You're rightfully condemned. I've forgiven you. Now, mercy, now that you've encountered mercy, mercy always transforms people. It is grace, Titus 2 tells us, that teaches us to reject the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men and live godly in this present age. That's like that's what grace does. And so you see this woman's encounter with grace changing her. And so she's not Jesus isn't saying go live sinlessly perfect. He's saying go run after holiness and don't run back to the life that I just rescued you from. And you're thinking, well, that's good for her. What a nice story. Because you don't see yourself in the circle. And I don't see myself in the circle. And so it's easy for this. Oh, that's so wonderful. Grace, good. And the Holy Spirit not stab you through the heart as one of the people with stones. Or stab you through the heart as one of those who's living in a condemnation that Jesus uncondemned you from. Or living in a life that Jesus rescued you from. Or living in a guilt that Jesus rescued you from. 
And the point is, Jesus' radical grace triumphs over rightful guilt. I'm going to just read through these points uh, because I've already hit them. Radical grace is hated by the self-righteous. Radical grace is hated by the self-righteous. This woman is guilty and we want to see her punished. You want to see her punished. And you're like, no, this is such a great story. I love that Jesus doesn't forget. I love that Jesus forgives her. I love that Jesus says sin no more. Don't you say that? Yeah, you say that until you're the one offended. You say that until you're the one betrayed. You're the one that's hurt. You're the one whose life has been devastated by the sin of another. But it's exactly at that point that radical grace works. It works at the point of offense. It works where damage is done. And so, yeah, I love grace. When Jesus has to give it to other people. But there's something in me that despises grace when it's for the person that has wronged me the most in my life. And that's these people. Self-righteousness hates grace. And we get stuck with that. There's parts of our heart that latch on to self-righteousness. It just does. But that radical grace that forgave you and transformed you and set you on a new life is the same grace that is radical enough for the offense of a person against you. Uh, we were talking in Colossians in our last Wednesday uh, night study. Like, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Remember the forgiveness that's been given to your life. And because you have been forgiven, forgive. Radical grace doesn't minimize or excuse sin. It forgives it. Radical grace doesn't minimize or excuse sin. It forgives it. Radical grace doesn't say, oh, it's okay, you're only human. Radical grace doesn't leave you with that nagging sense of, okay, now try harder. Radical grace doesn't say, you know what? It's just what people do. It's only natural. Radical grace acknowledges the horror, the infinite horror of what sin is and forgives it. It actually takes it away. It actually removes it. It doesn't wallpaper over the hole like it doesn't exist anymore. It seals it. It fills it. It removes it. And then lastly, radical grace transforms us into people who run after holiness. Radical grace transforms us into people who run after holiness. This is the way grace works. This is the way grace operates. It runs the self-righteous off. Go learn what it means, Jesus says, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go learn that. Because I didn't come to call the righteous or those who think they're righteous. I came for sinners. I came for this woman and I came for you. Right? But radical grace, the mechanisms of grace is that it goes down. It says, here's what sin is. And it's uglier than you can possibly imagine. It is deeper than you can possibly imagine. And once you've seen that true picture, here's forgiveness. Here's what it's like for it to be washed away. Because Jesus paid a price on the cross. But radical grace does not stop at the place of forgiveness. Great, I'm in. Once saved, always saved. Sin is gone. Me and Jesus are good. It's over. Now I'll just go kind of do what I want to do. No, radical grace completes by transforming our desires, transforming our nature, transforming the way we live, transforming the way we interact, transforming the way we think. And radical grace is not done until the work is completed in glory and perfected where it is a perfectly con- or perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus, just like Jesus in thought, just like Jesus in life, just like Jesus in action, just like Jesus in emotion. That's when grace is done. And that'll be eternity somewhere. 
couple practical things as we close. First, let grace expose and eradicate self-righteousness. It is so ingrained in us. It is so natural to us. It's so easy to judge the people around us and just, yeah, just a little bit. You know, if I can just critique the sermon a little bit, if I can just critique the Sunday school teacher a little bit, if I can just critique the people around me who are so much worse than I am, then I can just feel a little better about myself. It's just part of who we are. But Jesus wants to confront that in you and confront that in me. And like, that needs to go away. See me instead. Love me instead. Experience again the grace that is, that is in me again. Second, don't look for excuses but for forgiveness. Don't look for excuses but for forgiveness. Forgiveness sets people free. Excuses do not. Minimizing their sin will not wipe the stain off their conscience. It will not remove a guilty soul. Forgiveness sets free. Forgiveness inflames love. Whoever is forgiven much loves much. Forgiveness transforms. And so don't let forgiveness be short-circuited by your excuses. If you want to fall back in love with Jesus, then open up your heart to the mirror of the word and see how much ugliness is still there. And you'll realize whoever's forgiven much loves much. If you want to fall back in love with Jesus, then you see the horror of your sin. And remember a cross that cleansed it all the way. That's how you inflame your affections. Let grace reshape your values, desires, and tastes. If you're born again, you're born again for holiness. Not because it's something you're supposed to do, but because it is a whole new nature that yearns and desires for it to be part. Yearns and desires and tastes and loves it. And you run after it because it's you and you love it. <clears throat> and then the last one, serve and share with two. We're coming up in August. Hopefully you've been in Sunday school and we have been challenging you. There are some healthy habits that we want you to embrace. We want you to be part of a Sunday school community because we believe in that community and those relationships. Uh, your walk with Christ will be strengthened, not, not detracted from. In that environment, these teachers are going to be hearing, like, here's what it looks like to treasure Christ when whatever book we're studying and your heart's affections for Christ are going to grow. You're going to meet new friends. You're going to have new relationships. You're going to experience care. Like we believe that the best place for you to wire into the life of the church is there and if you're there which i hope you are and you have had these challenges already who's not there who's around you that needs to be connected to the body who's around you that needs to be folded into love and needs to be folded into relationships and need to be folded into a set of encouragements and discipling experiences because if you're experiencing it and if you're being enriched by it who's not Maybe it's somebody in your life where you work or you live or you play. Maybe it's somebody in the church that you've gotten to know because they've been visiting. And you're like, I just want to invite you into this experience. Serve and share with two. That's going to be the focus coming up. Radical grace will always triumph over your rightful guilt. Embrace it. Let's pray. So, Father, help us... uh, To taste grace again. To experience grace again. Not as something cheap to be thrown around, but as something precious that will will change us and transform us. Teach us to love grace. And God, for those little parts of our heart that cling to pride and cling to self-righteousness and cling to religion, would you rescue us from those too? 
Would you let us taste grace in those areas again, too? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.